If you're not a good accountant in the legal economy, you get audited. If you're not a good accountant in the illegal economy, you get shot. I mean, a different incentive, right? He wanted these guys to understand that they had developed some skills that when properly applied could really take them someplace. Welcome to The Law in Black and White, a podcast featuring Jonathan Greenblatt and myself, Brian Parker. We're the co-founders of Legal Innovators, an end-to-end, technology-enabled legal talent management solution. And we have been friends for over 25 years. We're both lawyers with lots of opinions. In this podcast, we look at current events, the business of law, innovation, and diversity in the legal industry. And occasionally, we'll even talk about sports. As the name of our show suggests, we recognize that there may be aspects of the law that require our thinking to go beyond just the black and white of the law. We share what we know, what we've learned, and what we're still learning. Thank you for joining us today. February is Black History Month, which celebrates Black and African American excellence, history, culture, and achievements, and honors the central role of the Black community in shaping the past, present, and future of the United States. In honor of Black History Month, our episode this month will be examining a few intertwined issues that affect the Black community. One, the championing and celebrating of Black-owned businesses. Two, marijuana possession convictions and the stark racial disparities that exist in such arrests. And three, the growing movement to legalize marijuana nationwide. We are joined today by our guest, Dr. Harold Dean Trulier. Dr. Trulier is an ordained American Baptist minister and the National Director of Healing Communities USA, which equips congregations to minister to individuals and families affected by mass incarcerations. He's on the pastoral staff of Praise and Glory Tabernacle in Southwest Philadelphia, and he serves as a fellow at the Center for Public Justice in Washington, D.C. Dr. Trulier also is a professor at Howard University, where he teaches courses on applied theology and community studies. He has taught courses at a number of universities, as well as correctional facilities such as Sing Sing and the D.C. Jail. He is a member of several organizations of formerly incarcerated and justice-involved persons working for justice reform, including Just Leadership USA. Dr. Trulier served as lead author or contributing editor to a number of publications, including Ministry with Prisoners and Families and Healing Communities USA Training Manual, and is the sole author of his book, Welcome Home, Essays and Reflections from Confinement to Community. His writings on religion, culture, and political affairs have appeared in PBS Religion and Ethics News Weekly, the Center for Public Justice Capital Commentary, UrbanFaith.com, and more. He's also a member of Correctional Chaplains and Ministries International, the 805 Recovery Group, and Phi Beta Kappa. Dr. Trulier is a graduate of Morehouse College and earned his PhD at Drew University, where I applied Dr. Trulier for college at one point many, many years ago. Dr. Trulier, thank you so much for joining us today. We're delighted you were able to make the time to talk to us, and we look forward to this conversation. So I'm going to give us some context. It's uh, it's it's going to be a mouthful, so I'd ask uh, you guys to, to bear with me and, and, and the audience, but I think that this will be important foundational information for our conversation here today. 
A 2015 study from Urban Affairs Review found that a growth of African-American-owned businesses was strongly linked to reduction in Black youth violence between 1990 to 2000. The study's author, sociologist Karen Parker of the University of Delaware, posits that Black-owned businesses act as social buffers, as their owners serve as role models to young people and create social networks that shield and divert youth from a life of crime. Additionally, she believes that Black-owned businesses mitigate some of the economic factors that contribute to youth violence in these communities. By providing employment opportunities and generally improving the neighborhoods where they exist. However, obstacles like difficulty accessing small business loans often make it a struggle for potential black business owners to get off the ground. And when it comes to programs that specifically prioritize diversity efforts in allocation, such as cannabis dispensary license, bureaucratic red tape in the application process has resulted in many potential minority licenses struggling to access the money and expertise they need to get licensed and launch a business. As it stands, only 2.4% of the U.S. businesses had Black owners in 2020, despite the Black population in the U.S. in in 2020, representing 12.6% of the population. For decades, nationwide marijuana legislation in the United States has been a hot-button issue and is increasingly looking like we may achieve it in our lifetime. In the last decade, 21 states in Washington, D.C. legalized recreational use of marijuana for adults 21 and older, and 37 states have legalized medical marijuana. As many as seven more states could legalize cannabis in 2023. The legal marijuana industry is currently estimated to be worth $26 billion and is predicted to grow to $42 billion by 2026. However, the booming new market and business opportunities it's creating also raise important questions about addressing the historic inequalities associated with policing of cannabis. The overwhelming majority of marijuana arrests, 9 out of 10, are for possession only. And in every state, Even those that have decriminalized or legalized cannabis, black people are more likely to be arrested for marijuana possession. On average, a black person is 3.64 times more likely to be arrested for marijuana possession than a white person, even though black and white people use marijuana at similar rates. These stark racial disparities in marijuana possession arrests have remained largely unchanged nationwide since 2010 despite the increasing number of states legalizing or decriminalizing marijuana. In some states, black people are up to six, eight, or almost 10 times more likely than whites to be arrested. And in 31 states, racial disparities were actually larger in 2018 than they were in 2010. Policy efforts to remediate these inequities are already underway. In 2022, New York State legalized recreational marijuana use. As an acknowledgement of the racial inequities produced and still perpetuated via the policing of marijuana, New York reserved its first round of dispensary retail licenses for nonprofits and applicants with previous marijuana convictions. Roland Connor was the first applicant to open his dispensary in Manhattan just a few weeks ago. Additionally, 
President Biden announced in the fall that he would pardon all U.S. citizens convicted of federal marijuana possession. And he asked the Department of Health to review its classification as a Schedule One drug. So now we find ourselves at this point in history where we are grappling with correcting historic and racialized wrongs by cannabis and over-policing, even as such policy reforms continue. So now, with all of that said, we can finally get into a great conversation with uh, Dr. Trulier, who I've had the pleasure of being in two classes with at the Howard School of Divinity. Dr. Trulier is a perfect guest here because he focuses a lot of his work on bringing systemic change. And I can't commend highly enough, and I know we're going to talk about it some today, his book, Welcome Home. Dr. Trulier, welcome. And thanks for sitting through that long uh, introduction. Oh, thank you for having me. It's, uh, it was good listening. I learned some things about New York, one of my former states. So, Dr. Trulier, I guess to start at the top, right, we are celebrating Black History Month right now. Um, and in doing so, we want to pause to reflect on how we can better support Black founder or Black-led businesses. And as we've just heard, the cannabis industry uh, presents an area of potential growth of such businesses. This raises two questions. Um, I'll, I'll uh, give them both to you, but then remind you uh, of the second one, if you'd like. And that is, how should Black people be included as business owners and employees in this industry? In your opinion, what role should Black people um, occupy in this growing industry? Part two, is nationwide marijuana decriminalization a goal that we should be working towards? And do you believe it's an issue of racial justice? that cannabis be legalized nationally? Well, for me, there are two things on the table with that. One is, is cannabis itself, and then the other is the business side of it. So that when John read my bio, right before Phi Beta Kappa came, the 805 Recovery Group. I'm in recovery. So for me, any conversation around mind-altering substances, I have to weigh in as someone who can't handle them, Right. Now, should they be legalized? I'll, I'll go backward. The way I look at it is alcohol is legalized. Um, and, you know, people argue that marijuana is or cannabis is a gateway drug. So is alcohol. So is nicotine. So, you know, it's, for me, it's kind of hypocritical to say, well, let's close the door on on one and you know, from a business standpoint and, and keep the other two open especially since um, they're both making money off of black communities. And like the cannabis industry that is developing, not a lot of African-American investment in ownership. So it seems to me that going back to Dr. Parker's report and other evidence we've had, there's all kinds of evidence that crime goes down when employment opportunities go up, that in African-American neighborhoods, we ought to be looking at whether or not Cannabis should be not not simply legalized, but whether or not it is a business opportunity. Right, I think that's a matter of fairness, especially since um, especially since alcohol is legal, since nicotine is legal, and people are making money off of them. I'll, I'll just stop there. I have a few other things I want to share, but I'll stop at that point. Yeah, and uh, thank you, and, I, and I'm sure we're going to tease out a lot of that. Um, maybe you could talk about you know the role that you see. Um, you know, uh, black people as business owners and employees, um, should that be a part of the regulatory regime? It, it, as, as you commented on to start, New York State, uh, when they started granting licenses, 
um, envision this? And I know that that's a, you know, that's a common thing in many states. Well, here's the other thing. I mean, you've got you've got the policy piece, which I believe in, right? You've got you've got to make it equitable, and you also have to address past wrongs. The other thing you have to deal with that's not mentioned in Dr. Parker's report is the ways in which African Americans do or don't patronize African American businesses. Right? Uh, Francis Fukuyama, in his book Trust, a real tour de force that I've used in in the classroom at Howard and other schools, talks about how interpersonal trust becomes a bridge towards the exchange of capital and goods and services. Uh, basically, he, you trade with whom you trust. And in chapter 26 of that book, he compares Black patronizing Black businesses to Koreans patronizing Korean businesses and the extent to which the dollar circulates in the Korean community over and against the way in which the dollar does not circulate in the Black community. And he traces it back to racism, internalized racism, the fact that African-Americans don't trust one another in business practices. So I think that part of what you have to do is you have to work on, on the cultural side of this, developing not only Black businesses, but also the stimulation for us to trust our own businesses. Because one of the things Fukuyama argues is that when trust is low, loyalty is high. He, he documents the fact that African-Americans are the most brand loyal of any ethnicity in the United States. And because they're brand loyal, because we're brand loyal, right, whether it's cigarettes, cars, or whiskey, <laughs> um, because we're brand loyal, if we can work to create brand loyalty and store loyalty within the community to parallel the, the, the need to grow the business, then, in fact, I think that those businesses have an opportunity to succeed where they may not have and then giving the detractors more ammunition for saying, see, they can't run anything. See, they don't deserve the businesses. We should have put our own people in, in charge of these businesses in the first place. So I think that's a dual track that has to be a go along the policy change. Dr. Schuller, as states continue to legalize, it does look like that is the trend. Although interestingly, just the week ago, within the last week, things were popping up on my news feed on my phone articles talking about, for the first time I've read in a long time, the dangers of marijuana. I don't know who's putting those out. Uh, my recollection was it was actually something being published in a publication I think I trusted, but but I can't remember for sure. So I, I, at first I look at it and say, well, well, where's it being published and what's the message? In this one, I thought, oh, I, maybe there's something I better go back and look at. I didn't yet, so I can't say I know what it said, but it seems like there's some stuff coming out about that. But as states do continue to legalize, the question for you is, how can they do that through a racial justice lens that takes account for the harms of over-policing, particularly with respect to cannabis, at the Black community that occurred for decades? It's a loaded question because it goes back to, the first part goes back to what we said earlier about you know marijuana being a gateway drug, being a dangerous drug, alcohol tobacco, you know, just as dangerous. And um, in fact, the withdrawal process from, from alcohol, it, it can be fatal. Yes. So we've already crossed the line into dangerous drugs, right? That if, if not used properly. I think that 
there has to be an effort. You know, the, first of all, there has to be a- answer the question: Why are states legalizing this? Who's going to make a profit off of this? Um, how's it going to be taxed? I mean, the joke, the joke in my neighborhood was always: They'll legalize as soon as they can figure out a way to tax it and make money for the government and make money for the rich and the powerful. And so there's that kind of skepticism. It's, it's, it's been it's being legalized because somebody's going to profit off of it. And so can we make sure that African-Americans become become part of the responsible distributorship? Right. As well as. Right. And I can't believe I'm using this example. Right. But the National Rifle Association also is very adamant about gun safety. Right. The alcohol industry, you know, part of the price of doing business is drink responsibly. And the, the gambling industry, I mean, which we heard every gambling, every gambling ad I heard here in the DMV leading up to the Super Bowl either mentioned gambling responsibly or these new devices you can put on your app to limit the time you spend on your gambling ad or the size of your, right? So the price of doing business is always responsibility. So the question becomes, how do we move African-Americans into a, a into responsible places, right? Because that's the difference between having a legalized industry and having an illegal industry. The illegal industry, there's no, there's no responsibility. There's no accountability. Everything is full profit. Regulating at least places a certain responsibility on the industry itself to provide safety, to provide um, checks and balances. And if I'm not mistaken, also uh, some of the profits get siphoned off into treatment, which then becomes another question whether or not Black-owned treatment centers are going to be part of this configuration of institutions or whether um, it's going to be the same old usual suspects that dominate the recovery industry, because we could do a whole show on how the recovery industry discriminates. And, um, you know, the, the first recovery place I went through, I was the only black patient out of 180 people. What does that say? I mean, uh, you know, if, if, if drugs and alcohol supposed to be a problem in the black community, how, how, can a, how can an elite recovery center, you know, have only one black patient out of 180? So I think it's got to expand into the whole of the industry's distribution. It's also on the treatment side because, because some of the profits are going to go over into that because what, that's going to be part of regulation. And do you think states have an obligation to take those things into account? I mean, if it's going to be legalized and they're going to give the licenses out, how would states go about making it more equitable? I think, first of all, they have to go into established organizations within the black community and seek their partnership. They're not going to get it from churches. I wouldn't expect them to. As a minister, I wouldn't partner my church with something like that, right? I might partner with a treatment center, but not with a dispensary. But finding reputable organizations within the black community with whom they can partner. And, um, you know, every every state has some kind of a small business uh, department, has... Um, linkages to the community that that can be that can be actualized so that you end up with something that's more responsible the second thing is we, we uh, brian mentioned earlier the disproportionate number of arrests for cannabis in the black community as those people are released then the, and the second thing states can do is you know give them an opportunity 
to be part of the legalized business, right? The Biden administration is releasing the federal prisoners convicted of marijuana possession. Some states aren't even prosecuting for marijuana possession now. When I was living in New Jersey, they stopped prosecuting for cannabis possession unless you were also being charged with something else, right? But if it was just strict possession, then, you know, they would... Well, actually, it wasn't, it wasn't legalized, but what they did was they they, they put you into um, treatment programs, right? Try to some kind of um, alternative to incarceration. So we, we know all the people who've gone through those programs who are coming home. We could set up programs that could move them legally into the business, right? With the kind of accountability that would go along with government regulation. Good setup uh, by by both of you, John. Thanks for that question, and, and Dr. Triller. I think you you led us right into the next question, which I'm sure you could talk to us for hours on your book. But uh, you know, however however much of a snippet you'd like to share with the community. But in all seriousness, in in your in your new book, um, Welcome Home, you discuss the concept of community, and here being Black History Month. Um, we go to lots of uh, Dr. King quotes, right? And and one that came to mind when we were thinking about this episode uh, was uh, his quote, uh, we are all caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one affects us all indirectly. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what I ought to be until I am what I ought to be. So a lot, a lot there. Um, how can we going to the concept of community and, and, and you talked about, um, uh, both treatment, uh, roles for the, the, the business. But one of the things that we talk a lot when we talk about, um, you know, uh, the prison pipeline and, and, and sentencing and things is recidivism. So. How can we how can we uh, capture on uh, King's quote or the spirit of it, your book, Welcome Home, and consider building community and the role that economic justice can play in keeping people out of prisons? Well, there's, there's a couple of things. One is the, the community piece is a critical component of for people coming home. One of the things we know, and this this may surprise some people, is that the two most critical components of successful return from jail or prison into society is having pro-social attitudes, right? Having the right attitude coming home and pro-social relationships that reinforce those attitudes, right? So that the idea that the most important thing people need when they come home is having a job gets debunked by the fact that if I give you a job, but you don't have the right attitude and you don't have the right social network, you'll lose the job. 57% of African-Americans and, and people and, and, and Latinos who were arrested were working full-time in the legal economy at the time of their arrest, right? So that's that's almost 60%. That's more, almost three out of five. So having a job does not keep you out of the system, right? Sometimes it's, it's, it's being underemployed, but it's also having the right attitude about work, having the right attitude about family, having the right attitude about community. And so one of the things that one of the reasons I wrote the book was to get people thinking about some of the other things that are necessary, because a lot of guys when I was locked up at uh, George W. Hill Correctional Facility in Pennsylvania. A lot of guys, you know, I would get a home, get a job. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. 
Um, but very seldom did you hear them talk about making the necessary mental changes. Very seldom did you hear them talk about getting new friends. Some of them talked about getting a new wife. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's just in terms of circles of friends and people. Right in time for Valentine's well, Day tomorrow. Oh yeah, that's yeah. Just, I didn't even think about that. That's well, yes, you're, you'll be celebrating soon. Yeah. yeah, I'll be getting married in in uh, less than three weeks. Yeah. Hey, congratulations! Thank you to a woman who's never seen me drunk. That's 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 amazing to me. But she has um, met you, right? <laughs> yes, she has met. Okay. I thought where you were going was I thought you were going to say to a woman who's never seen me, and I. <laughs> oh, okay. No, no, she's she's seen me. She's seen me all right. Uh, <laughs> you know, the you got me. You made me lose much. Okay, but we're on reentry. And so when um, you know, when people come home, they need to have the right attitude towards coming home. They need to have. A sense of belonging. There's a there's a great piece by Chris Morganson, who's a pastor in upstate New York, who did research on um, guys coming home from the uh, Broome County jail system where he was a chaplain. And he found that having a sense of belonging and a sense of purpose were absolutely critical. And so when we talk about beloved community, we're, t- we're talking about belonging. We're talking about relationships that make me feel worthwhile, re- relationships that affirm who I am. And those are traits that I'm going to need in business, right? I'm going to have to have a very clear sense of who I am. I'm going to have to have a sense of what it means to be a business operator that's serving the community as opposed to fleecing the community. I'm going to have to have a sense of what it means to be responsible in business, all those things. I know a lot of people that I've associated with who committed white-collar crimes and just not responsible. And so what I try to do in the book is I try to get people to think about how do my relationships impact my sense of, of being in community? So kind of turn the tables on a couple of things. I have a chapter in there on children, right? And normally we think about it as... Well, I'm not there for my kids, right? And um, I remember, you know, I missed a birthday. And I, I called my daughter, one of my grandkids' birthday, and I called my, my daughter to apologize to my daughter. My daughter said, well, you know, Dad, she's two, so she didn't know you weren't there. I'm grown, so it's not like if I was a kid. She said, but you missed it. You need to think about the fact that you missed a birthday that you'll never get again. And And part of what she was trying to get me to do was to think about how I view myself as a father and as a grandfather, right? That's attitude. And those are the kinds of things that help people stay home. Now, uh, being a business owner or, or you know, uh, or an entrepreneur, like I always say an entrepreneur, say a business owner, because entrepreneur, entrepreneurialism is what gets some guys locked up because drug dealing is multi-level marketing, right? So well, being owning your own business, right, and, and being a legitimate entrepreneur can increase one's sense of self-worth, can increase one's sense of, of the value of the self, value of the community. You can't just reduce it to money. And if I make enough money, I won't um, have to resort to crime. It's also, if I have a business, I have a, 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 a much better sense of who I am. I'm an entrepreneur that's not looking over his shoulder every five minutes for the cops or for competition armed competition, right? And I wanted people to th- begin thinking about those kinds of things. Um, what about education? Is 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 education something that, that I need to be pursuing while I'm in here? 
what, what choices? That's another thing I really try to push. You know, one of the things that we know about people who are coming home is they have to learn to make better choices, right? And I remember I was teaching a class at DC jail. I'll stop with this. And one of the guys said, I didn't have any choice but to sell drugs. There were no jobs in my community. I had no choice, right? So, Brian, you you, you took ethics and you remember the whole concept of moral agency, the capacity to choose. So I decided to introduce, this was an ethics class, I decided to introduce the concept of moral agency uh, into that class by using this guy as an example. I said, okay, so you had no choice but to sell drugs. He said, that's right. I said, you could have been a stick-up man. I said, you could have run a chop shop. You could have carjacked people. You could have been a burglar. Um, you could have been a male prostitute. I just went down all the list of choices he had within the illegal economy, right? In order to feed his family is what he told me. So trying to expand his sense of of choice, right? Because he thought when I said, well, of course you had a choice, he thought it's going to come back. Well, you could have stayed in school and got a job, right? He was expecting me to say that, but I didn't. I just laid out all these different opportunities um, that, and he just happened to choose selling drugs, right? And so I said, maybe your opportunities were limited by where you lived, limited by the lack of education and lack of, of, of economic opportunity. But we call that conscripted moral agency, right? And the guys love that. When I came back to the jail the next week, one of the COs came and said, man, you got the guys back on the block talking about, you conscripted my moral agency, you know? Um, <laughs> Well, elevating the conversation never heard, right? Yeah, they, they they hadn't heard that conversation before. But the point of it is, is getting people to think in ethical terms. I mean, community is not just a neighborhood. It's an ethical framework of, of being in relation with one another. And part of what we have to do is we have to create the book is for people who are making the transition back home. But I also recommend it for people who are working with folks who are coming back home or pastors or community leaders who are going to receive people coming back into their neighborhoods, right? Or family members, because there are all these different dimensions of making that transition back that we don't consider when we just think about you need a job and a place to stay. Yeah. I'm sorry, real quick, John. I, I know that John, John's going to obviously ask another question, but I think, you know, maybe I would expand that 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 audience for the book, right? Because when we talk about a beloved community or a community uh, generally, part of the definition is both sides have similar goals and purposes of being there. And so even for the ordinary citizen in terms of putting this out there, how do you stop this? You've got to say, all right, hey, there's a chance for you as long as you're making those moral choices to come back and be a part of this community. Yeah. If nothing else, it's for empathy. I mean, even if I don't have a person returning or I'm not in the community where too many people are returning, understanding what the people who are coming back go through. So you stop making, you know, knee jerk judgments on people is pretty, I think that's important for all of us as a matter of tolerance. I agree. The, the Judeo Christian tradition teaches that all people are created in the image of God, right? Islam has a very high view of humanity under, under Allah. You know, our religious traditions um, tell us that every human being has created worth. And we live in a system that in places like this jail or this prison diminish human worth. And we develop these narratives about people that dehumanize them. They're thugs, they're 
criminals there, all kinds of names. I got into a debate with uh, an attorney who went to my high school, and and I'm trying to say that the negative narrative stereotypes, and it does not help us. And his thing is, um, when they act better, I'll call them better. And I think it's a vicious cycle. When you continue to perpetuate the labeling, and, and and he cited Jesus, you know, Jesus called people names. Jesus operated in a shame culture where you shamed people to kind of bring them back. I mean, that was that, that, that ancient Near Eastern culture. There were shame cultures. And even in Paul's writings in the New Testament, he talked about shame a lot. We don't live in a shame culture. Nobody's shamed in this culture. Shame doesn't work. It's not part of our cultural apparatus for helping to correct people's behavior. Punishment doesn't work. It's not a deterrent. We know that from the statistics. So you've got to try something else and inviting people into community and treating them like they're human beings. Even one of the one of the things I love where, where Jesus says to uh, Simon Barjona, you are Peter, you're going to be a rock. And even before he was a rock, he, he, he treated him as the man that he was growing him to become. And I think more of that with regards to reentry and recidivism reduction. I, I remember, real quick, there's a program in Dayton, uh, Ohio, that I, I, I had a chance to observe a reentry program. And all of the men who were in this pre-release reentry program, they had nameplates at their desks when they came in for their classes. And they, and they all said, doctor, doctor so-and-so. And when I asked the uh, director, why are you calling these guys doctor? He says, because they have a PhD in the streets. I want them to begin to think of themselves differently. And I want them to understand that the things they learned in the streets can actually be beneficial to them if they put them within a moral framework, right? You've got to be a good mathematician. You've got to be a good accountant to sell drugs, right? Because, you know, if you're not a good accountant in the legal economy, you get audited. If you're not a good accountant in the illegal economy, you get shot. I mean, it's a different incentive, right? But he's, he wanted these guys to understand that they had developed some skills that, when properly applied, could really take them someplace. And so they were all called doctor. Wish I, could, I wish I could think of the name of the program, but it was in Dayton, Ohio, that I saw that. So just, just to come back to the theme of Black History Month in general, what are your thoughts on what we as a society should be doing to better support Black-owned and Black-led businesses, irrespective of the industry they're in? You talked about trust, you know, and that's what leads to, trust leads to trading. I think there's a lot of people who, uh, for various reasons, actually want to support these, uh, you know, burgeoning businesses and give people opportunity. How can we, those who want to do it, how can we do more? Wow. Aside from patronizing, I think we have to be aggressive in committing to to investment in that. There's just went through a situation where we patronized a black printer and paid more money than we would have at Staples. And, and on the one hand, it's like, wait a minute, why is he charging more than Staples? The and, and but the other hand is if you know business, you know why he's charging more than Staples, right? He has different overhead needs, different, you know, um, expenses, right? And uh, Charles Adams, who used to be the pastor, he's pastor emeritus now of um, Hartford Memorial Baptist Church in Detroit. He used to look at that and said, "Okay, um, 
you got the hog of staples and you got the the pig of um the small black owned business. He says, Well, how do you grow a pig into a hog? You gotta feed it. And so it will require, I think, um perhaps even a disproportionate amount of investment to bring people up to speed while maintaining, you know, accountability for quality of product. And and I don't have a problem with that. I don't have a problem with overinvestment. The fact of the matter is, if you do the math and go beyond how much I pay for a service at Staples, right? I then have to ask the question, how does Staples invest its profits? Where does that money go? And I may be actually acting to my detriment by patronizing the large box store um, long-term than I am by patronizing the small business of my community, which is more likely to reinvest in my community. So I think that's 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 one thing. I think secondly, black business owners have to reinvest in their own communities, in our own communities. The goal should not be to get up and out of the community. The goal should be to transform the community. And too much, uh, especially in my generation, the boomers, too much was was fed to us about getting up and out, right? You know, we were kids when the Jeffersons were on television. We finally got a piece of the pie. Well, I don't want I don't want a piece of the pie. The pie's diseased, right? WB Du Bois used to say black people argued for a seat at the front of the bus for so long they forgot to ask where the bus is going. So investing in black businesses also means holding black businesses accountable for community development and for community change. And so, you know, it's not just throwing money at black businesses because the owners are black or they employ black people, right? I think I just wanted to offer another example of what we were talking about and of, of how maybe we can tie, you know, this kind of ownership uh, to social good. And, and another another thing comes from New York in a, a dispensary that just opened uh, this week. It's called uh, Union Square uh, Travel Agency. And it is uh, two, two co-founders, uh, Ariana Hank and uh, Biggers uh, and Paul Ye. They have um, promised 51% of their profits to the Doe Fund. Um, and um, I think, Ooh. I think this is, this is powerful because what the Doe Fund does is provide work, housing, access to continuing education, uh, career train, training and, uh, and counseling uh, to some of New York's uh, most marginalized communities. And, you know, a lot of what you were saying, uh, Dr. Julier, the proof will be in the, in the pudding. I will say, um, as we, as we transition, um, as a, substantially, you know, black owned business. We're thankful, um, you know, to, to all of our partners for how they've uh, supported us and gotten us through COVID and uh, kind of keep us going, but also to salute all the, all the businesses, uh, uh, black owned, substantially owned, uh, led, uh, whatever the case may be. Um, and, you know, I think it's our hope, right, that we'll continue on some of the momentum that we had after uh, George Floyd and, and really both both hold them up, but hold them accountable, too, as, as you said. So I'm going to transition us to our pet peeve section. As I as I said a little bit at the beginning, um, we try to try to have a little bit of fun at this. And this can be uh, just something that's on your mind, something that's bothering you. And, and since it's uh, uh, it is Black History Month, we can play Joker's Wild. If there's something you want to just uh, hold up and, and be grateful for, uh, that that's also fine. Um, uh, Dr. Truer, we always let our guests go first. So we're going to come uh, over to you. Mm, pet peeve. Um... 
Boy, it doesn't have anything to do with Black History Month, but I'll tell you what my pet peeves, you know, my, my, my Eagles lost yesterday, right? I, I don't have my Eagles shirt on. I got my old USFL Philadelphia Star shirt on. <laughs> One of my pet peeves is how people talk so badly about Philadelphia fans. Like we're like we're heathens, you know, we're the next, you know, generation of, of, of pillagers. You know, I, I used to I used to do pregame worship services for the New York Giants, right? At Giants Stadium, right? It was the, and um, they had to, and I, I, I do the pregame worship search for the players that wanted to go. And then I, I got tickets to the game as payment. And um, they made the ushers wear yellow rain slickers. Security people wore yellow rain slickers because there were so many fights and when they would try to break them up, the fans would dump beer on them, right? So I remember being in Giant Stadium, watching these security guys run around breaking up fights while they were getting beer doused on them. But no, but Philadelphia people are worse than everybody else, right? Dr. Trulier, so, those were Eagle fans who had come to New York for Eagle games. I, I, I can't believe the whole story is distorted. I, I knew there was going to be a retort in there somewhere. Uh, so, so well done, John. Uh, or they might have been Jet fans, by the way. <laughs> they could have been. Over to you, John. And I said, I, and I said, both of them. Oh, both of them. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's about how many fans the Jets have. <laughs> anyway, so my pet peeve is a minor one this week, um, but I had to deal with uh, the fact that the only t way I could get tickets to a basketball game recently was electronically. I don't mind having that as an option. I'm not in love with having it as the only way you can do it. Because what happens if, as often is the case with me, my cell phone is running out of battery and you're trying to get in the game, right? <laughs> or what happens if, God forbid, you left your cell phone home and you're driving to the game and you're halfway there and you realize you forgot your... To me, this over-reliance on, on electronic ways is the only way to do it. Putting aside the fact that the thing never reads it right, it doesn't save any time um and you have to you know transfer it to your wallet and hope that you can find your wallet you know at the right time and you have enough you have to have enough bandwidth to be able to call it up this is i don't uh, you know especially in a stadium where by the way there's no bandwidth so uh i'm not i'm not a fan of the electronic tickets as the only way you can get into an event Maybe you could start a, one of those petitions, you know, John. Uh, uh, of course, it's an online petition, but uh, you, you, you might be able to <laughs> start a movement. Well, it would, it would consist of people only my age, so there wouldn't be that many people uh, in it, and I don't think anybody's going to listen to us on this, but at least when you could print your boarding pass or have it electronically, you had an option. You have no option here. Yeah, that's that that that's right. Um, I'll uh, I'll close this out, and and I think you know for me personally, um, you know, a, a pet peeve is is normally like, uh, are we showing um, you know sort of the, the the best of us? Are we are we highlighting some of the good examples? And so, this this won't be such a pet peeve because I do think, despite um, the fact that I was rooting for uh, the the Eagles yesterday and, and and they lost, I think we should pause and say, I mean, it you know obviously wasn't. Scripted this way, but it was the first time in the Super Bowl we had two black quarterbacks 
playing against each other. They both played uh, and represented the position in their teams in a superb fashion. Uh, and then for all mothers, but you know, I, I would compliment um, Rihanna. Uh, and I saw uh, a meme last night after uh, she finished her performance because she gave a, uh, I thought a wonderful performance. And then it's later revealed that she's uh, pregnant with her second child. I think maybe six months pregnant. And she says, uh, if I can do a Super Bowl halftime show six months pregnant, you can get up and go to work tomorrow uh, after the Super Bowl. So um, I think uh, working mothers, uh, being raised by a single mom myself, do an incredible job. So uh, I'd like to give her a shout out and just a great day uh, yesterday. Thank you, Dr. Trulia, just being able to have you know, a person with your level of uh, insight uh, and kind of talk to our audience in a, in a way that we don't normally uh, get to talk to them was, uh, I think, really uplifting. And I'm going to be anxious to see people wrestle with, uh, with the material and what we've said, but uh, I thought it was a very good conversation. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to be with you guys. Hope it won't be the last time. For sure. Us too. I don't think it will be. Brian and I thank all of you for listening to the law in black and white and we hope you enjoyed our discussion you can find us at legal-innovators.com for even more insights you can also subscribe to our podcast and follow legal innovators on social media to see what we're up to in the meantime be safe and we look forward to talking to you at our next episode <laughs>